phone, whatever you have nearby, open up the scripture with your family, uh, and, and let's, let's read it together. I'll ask you to turn to Romans 1, verse 15 through 17. I'm always, I love my wife dearly, and I'm so glad that I get to do life, and I get to do ministry with her, and I love my son so much, and I'm, I just enjoy the time to be with them, and then also to be with my family. Uh, again, our, as, as Pastor Kurt mentioned, our circumstances are a little different than we thought even a week or two ago, but but we'll roll with the punches. We'll, we'll, we'll do what we can, and it's better to be in the timing of God than, than anything else. Romans chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. It says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I want to preach this morning to the few that are here, that are gathered here, and, and to all those that are watching in their homes on a, a, a simple t- title, simple topic, The Problem with My Faith. The problem with my faith. Now, if those here and those at home would put your Bibles down for a moment, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to speak today. Jesus, we trust you. God, and I come to you, Lord, humbled, and I ask, Lord, that that I could be your sounding board. And I pray, Jesus, that you would speak today, Lord, and let every person be moved by your spirit. God, not by my words, not by my wisdom or ability, God, but I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak, that, that you would move into this place, move into each person's home today, God, and that you would move on their lives, God, and that you would change them and comfort them, Jesus, in this uncertain time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sometimes we get so familiar with a portion of text that we don't consider context. So Paul wishes, uh, writes that he wishes to preach in Rome. He wishes to go to Rome and preach the gospel. But when you consider the context of what Rome was actually like, preaching the gospel in Rome was no small or minor task. Paul wrote the book of Romans around 58 A.D., but he did not actually travel to Rome until 60 A.D., almost two years Later is when he actually traveled. And and while the persecution of the church didn't formally begin until 64 A.D., six to seven years later than when Paul wrote the first book, excuse me, the first chapter of Romans, the growing discontent towards Christianity did not make Rome a, a pleasant congregation for a messenger of the gospel. See, Rome boasted a population of nearly four million diverse, educated, and free thinking people, right? 117 A.D. was the apex of the Roman Empire influence and power. So at the time that Paul was writing this letter to the Roman church, the Roman Empire is ascending to its peak of power and influence, right? The Roman Empire to date is the largest and widest spreading social and economic empire the world has ever seen. And the city of Rome was the center of commerce, was the center of political power while still growing its influence. This Rome, the height of power, knowledge, at the time, is the place that that Paul declares unabashedly that he will preach the gospel. But in this proclamation, there's language that strikes me very odd. There's language that, that, that sits in my mind in a peculiar way. Instead of Paul saying, I'm excited to, or I long to preach the gospel, I wish to come and preach this amazing gospel to you, Paul states, 
For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. So why would Paul attribute shame to preaching the Gospel unless there was something to be ashamed of? I believe that Paul articulated something very concisely that we all understand here in the 21st century. And that is when we consider evangelizing to the learned, the wise, the educated, the powerful, our human nature creates insecurities concerning the Gospel. See, before we share faith with someone, we assume how they will perceive the Gospel. We go through self-talk of, well, okay, I've done this before. How will they defend their own faith or lack of faith? Or which angle will they push back on? See, we prepare ourselves for the debates that we assume they are ready to have. And before we can even bring the good news to someone, we've already talked ourselves out of sharing the gospel because we assume. See, they've already heard this message and they don't want to hear it again. We subconsciously in our mind come to the conclusion that people around us aren't in need of the gospel because they're happy and content with their lives. See, before we can even begin to share the testimony of Jesus Christ, we choose their response to the gospel for them. And it's by that line of thinking that I believe God spoke to me and uncovered to me the problem with my faith, which is the title of my sermon today, the problem with my faith. See, the problem with my faith is that I have replaced the powerful gospel with a practical Christianity. See, I have, a way, in a way, along with many other Christians, removed the difficult-to-swallow portions of Christianity. I've removed the spiritually deep principles from, from, the, from the Bible, and I've taken these concepts out and I've replaced them with the pretty picture of what I think Christianity should be. See, I have perpetuated, among many others, I have perpetuated this positive psychology, this easy believism, this social prosperity gospel that makes it easier for all people, no matter their economic status or, or what, where they come from, wealthy, educated, to I easily identify and apply the gospel to their lives. See, what I've realized is that for a long time, due to my inclination to be critical to almost everything, I have been ashamed of the gospel. See, I've picked out the parts that I don't like or don't want to represent or don't want to try to explain to somebody. And I've tossed out, I've picked out the pretty parts and I've tossed aside the ugly parts. See, what I've realized is that for the same reasons Paul said we would be ashamed of the gospel or fearful of sharing the gospel are the same reasons that I've become ashamed of the gospel. See, I came to, to the realization that while Paul, while Paul wrote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, if I were to be the one writing it, I would probably be writing, for I have been ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And, and forgive me because that's not an easy confrontation to have with God. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, understanding that Rome was home to the world's greatest military and political power and brightest minds, knew that he would be ridiculed, possibly tormented and persecuted for preaching faith. Yet he still declares that the true power that the world must know is the power of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul realized that it's not intellect, it's not answers to moral problems that the world needs, but Paul understands this world needs the transformative power of the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.1, says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, 
came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Hear me from your home today. Maybe you feel the same way that I, I, had, I did when I was confronted with that, that you have been, at moments in your life been ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The world needs far less of your wisdom, of my wisdom. The world needs the power of God. Your world, your family, your workplace needs the power of the cross of Jesus Christ to radically transform their life. Every person from the richest to the poorest, to the educated, to the uneducated, needs to experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, it's not just enough to know that the historical Jesus lived on this earth, died on the cross, and resurrected from the dead. But Jesus today is alive. His Gospels are true, and He can change any life today. As the Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Paul would eventually travel to Rome after he wrote these eloquent and, and, and spirit-influenced words. He would eventually travel to Rome in 60 AD to preach the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, the Roman government would put him under house arrest for nearly two years. <laughs> and it's incredible, right? In this time and this season, we're restricted to our homes. Roman, uh, Paul in Rome was restricted to his home. Yet he saw an incredible revival as hungry souls poured into his home and he discipled and taught the gospel. The formal persecution didn't start until four years after Paul got to Rome. In 64 AD, and in that time, Paul was thrown into prison. And it was from that prison cell that he would eventually be taken and put to death. And it was from that prison cell that he penned other letters to the church. One of them being 2 Timothy in roughly 64 AD. So approximately eight years after he wrote Romans 1.16, he wrote 2 Timothy. And it's believed to be his last will and testament. And so when I, when I came across that, I, I flipped to 2 Timothy and I asked the question, okay, what did eight years do to, do to Paul? What did, how did eight years of preaching of persecution change his perspective, his outlook on life? 2 Timothy 1 Verse 7 says, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And hear this. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And then verse 12, he goes on, he says, And I, and I have suffered for all these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Understand this. Understand this, that the Bible wouldn't be agreed upon, recopied, and spread until the 5th century, nearly 500 years later. So Paul couldn't even refer to his own writings nearly 8 years before. But out of his heart, out of the depths of his spirit, he declared once more, this time the subject of persecution and imprisonment. He said, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. See, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul continues 
his letter to Timothy. And he has a long list of accusations to what the end times will look like. Verse 1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And I won't read all the descriptions, but I'm going to point out just a few for time's sakes. Verse 2, he says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Verse 3, he calls them false accusers, despisers of those that are good. Verse 5, he says, They have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Verse 7, he says, This society in the end time will be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like the 21st century to me. Men who despise those that do good. Despisers of those that do good. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Listen, listen, listen. The, the, the Hollywood, the, the agenda, and that's where I'm going. I, and I understand this, but what I've seen is that they, they have a form of godliness. Why? Because they preach love. They preach love. They preach love. Love is not a concept they created. Love is a concept that God is. And so they, they want to preach this message. Here's the problem, though. They are missing the power thereof. They preach love, but they don't preach the power that transforms lives and changes people to be who God has called them to be. Verse 12, though, he moves on and he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul identifies in this third chapter to Timothy, in his letter, two core issues that I personally deal with that lead to my problem with my faith. The first is the assumption that Christians are not intelligent. And the second is the threat of persecution. See, I came to terms with the fact that I am completely, totally, and utterly unique, right? Just like everybody else. So I'm just like every single other person in this world. And I believe that, that if God dealt with me on something that then maybe someone else has gone through the same thing. So I know today is a, obviously very non-standard, and I'm going to preach a little different than I generally do. But, but I want to preach, and, and I want maybe someone to come to terms with this. And maybe someone can seek God in this, and, and, and they can be helped, and they can be better after this. But, but this first idea that I want to discuss, that I absolutely hate the feeling of being ignorant, right? I don't think anybody likes the feeling of being stupid. And so, um, but there's this idea that Christians are ignorant, uneducated, and faith makes us unable to reason. There's this, this perpetuating idea that we don't know how to use our mind to think. Paul wrote in verse 7, the last days people will be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Right? Society today believes that they have intellectually evolved beyond the need for Christianity, for religion, for God, right? Critics will tell you that there's no need for scriptural truth. They'll tell you the Bible is and its practices are outdated and archaic. And it feels like all the brightest minds in our world today are opposed to this truth that we believe. And I believe that there are too many of us that fear we don't have all the answers to all the questions and so because we feel like we don't have every answer to every question, that we are unable or unashamed to share this gospel. See, our culture assumes that we discard our logic and reason when we become a Christian and we learn to, to live by faith. Our world, though, has moved to a place where they, they desire concrete evidence for God, yet they rely on their feelings to validate sin. You see, the shame of feeling uneducated and ignorant leads me to a reserved, practical Faith. However, 
However, I'll have it known today that there are more and more brilliant, bright people who are defending our faith. There is no need to feel intellectually inferior or ignorant in the 21st century as there are many people preaching the gospel who are much smarter than I am. But hear this today. There is absolutely no other worldview that can answer life's four greatest questions as coherently and logically as the Christian message. Those four questions are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, where we come from. Meaning, why is it we exist? Morality, what does it mean to be good? Where does good come from? And destiny, where we are going. There is no other ideology, ideological idea or anything that can explain those four greatest questions as logically, as coherently as the Christian message. However, this world tries to continue to force down your throat that you cannot be a Christian and be intelligent at the same time. They try to shame you intellectually for being a believer. But you do not have to prescribe to this world's agenda. You can logically reason the evidence proving that there is a God and there is a truth with any critic of the gospel. Do not let this world shame you for your faith. Just because science can't explain it doesn't mean it isn't true. Just because logic doesn't support it doesn't mean it, it's, it didn't happen. Science cannot explain why my wife was healed at six years old from a terminal heart condition. Logic would have led to death. But science and logic do not explain why I'm married to that beautiful woman, why she is by my side. Just because logic doesn't explain it doesn't mean it isn't true. You see, the greatest evidence that we have of our faith is that the power of God has changed us forever. The greatest proof of this truth is your testimony. No matter what question or what theory the, the anti-faith crowd throws your way, there will always be the undisputed fact that you and I have been changed by this gospel forever. And in my estimation, that is why Paul didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's logically coherent. That's why I believe he didn't say those words exactly. But he said, I am not ashamed of this gospel, this power that saves, that heals and delivers. He knew and had seen the power of God will always be more convincing than the wisdom of men. Now, the second thing that I fear that creates the problem with my faith is the threat of persecution and even just the perceived threat of persecution. As Paul states in 2 Timothy 3.12, we read, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, su shall suffer persecution. See, we come up with this idea in our mind that if we share Jesus to our world today, that people will be so offended that they will take us and verbally abuse us, physically abuse us, or even kill us. See, this practical faith that I have adopted tells me to protect my life. This practical God that I serve, right? Because that's what, hap that's what happens when you have a practical faith. You then create your own practical God, right? This practical faith, I said, that I, I, I follow, says that persecution is something to avoid and to fear. And I can easily detect my false faith because Jesus tells me that the exact opposite of what my self-preserving faith tells me. In Matthew 5, 10, Jesus said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Verse 12, rejoice 
and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Do you think it's any coincidence that in Acts 5.41, after the apostles had been beaten by the Sanhedrin and told not to preach Jesus anymore, that they left, the uh, Acts 5.41 says, they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You can't tell me that they didn't think back to the words of Jesus and make a deliberate attempt to worship after the first time they experienced persecution. Jesus said in John 15.20, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So I have to ask you this question. What significance does persecution for our faith have in our lives? Or I can ask it this way. What can the lack of persecution tell us? Hear me today. We fear persecution, and that's a normal fear. But if there is any indicator to determine whether I am in the will of God or not, it must be persecution. The apostles were persecuted for the gospel. Jesus was killed for his gospel. See, if I'm being persecuted for my faith, I can be reassured I am being a proper witness of this gospel. But if I allow fear to water down this gospel, I certainly will not be persecuted by this world because that is exactly what this world wants. They want an undefendable, watered-down Christianity and fearful Christians who are too afraid to proclaim what is truth what is moral and who is good? Hear me, as I close today, I'm going to allow the final words to your pastor. But I want to issue a challenge this morning. Do not fear being perceived as unintelligent. And do not fear for the threat of persecution, but rejoice in it. We cannot afford, hear me today, from your living room, from your family room, hear me today. We cannot be, a, we cannot afford to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus in the world that we live. There is not enough time. There's too many that are hurting. There are too many that are desperate and crying out from this for this truth. Hear me this morning. I feel God is issuing you and I a challenge, and I've dealt with this for months on end. Don't be ashamed of this gospel. Let the apostolic church be known as the church that preaches truth, no matter how unpopular, no matter how persecuted. Let the people in this church, in your church, in your home, in your family, be unabashedly proud and unashamed to proclaim the good news. Paul was persecuted for preaching his truth. And from his prison cell, he wrote to Timothy and said, yes, this world will persecute you. Yes, this world will shame you for intellectual reasons. But you cannot be ashamed of this gospel. This gospel is the, is the word, is the gospel, is the truth that liberates, breaks the chains of addiction and bondage. This gospel is salvation. And I, I can no longer be ashamed. I challenge you, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, maybe, and, 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 I, and I challenge you for next week, and the week after, and the month after, and years to come, let this be a word for not just this moment, for, for the rest of your life. I pray that you would be challenged by this not to be ashamed. I challenge you, do not be ashamed for your faith and truth. They're going to sing here, and I pray that in your home, and it may not be normal as none of this is, but maybe close your eyes 
maybe bow your head, lift your hands. And if you're comfortable, go ahead and worship, go ahead and pray on this. But I want to offer an altar-like opportunity. Your home, you can build an altar exactly where you are. And you can talk to God about this. And you can come to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry that I've been ashamed. But I will not, moving forward, ever be ashamed of this gospel. Because your truth liberates, your truth frees. So in this moment, let's, as they sing, create an altar in your living room, in your family room, and let the Lord move on your heart.